The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday, November 11th, and you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Radio Network. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and we are coming to you once again live from Blastoff Studios in Times Square. Today's Veterans Day. It's an official United States holiday that honors people who have served in the U.S. Armed Forces. It's a federal holiday that is observed on November 11th, which is today. It coincides with other holidays such as Armistice Day and Remembrance Day, which are celebrated in other parts of the world. Veterans Day celebrates the service of all U.S. military veterans, while Memorial Day is a day of remembering the men and women who died while serving. So cheers to all you veterans out there today. From Good Morning New York, you're all heroes. Let's get right to the news. The late Lauren Bacall's longtime Dakota residence is poised to hit the market any minute now with an asking price of $26 million. Her estate tapped Wahlberg Realty to broker the place, which she purchased back in 1961 for a pittance when she could count Boris Karloff, Judy Holliday, and Roberta Flack as neighbors. Good luck with that price. Brooklyn-born actress Deborah Messing, best known for her role on Will and Grace, is moving to East 84th Street. According to public records filed today, Messing paid $5.4 million for a nicely laid out full floor unit at 3 East 84th Street, just off Fifth Avenue. The unit was listed for $5.9 million in June, but reduced a few weeks later. Eleven of the rental apartments on top of Crunch Gym at 158 West 83rd Street between Columbus and Amsterdam Avenues has arrived on the market. The building's available studio one and two bedroom apartments currently range from 2625 to 4050 with some uh, units reaching $6,000 per month. Parkwood Realty Association developed the modern-looking addition that houses 22 residents, and they take over six floors. Since its last day on the Upper East Side in October, the next step for the Whitney Museum of American Art is to officially move to its new meatpacking uh, district flagship location. The building, still under construction, designed by Renzo Piano, is located at the southernmost end of the High Line and is slated to open in the spring of 2015. An exact date will be um, announced by year's end. Harry Macklow, he's at it again, is wasting no time on his latest project. The developer purchased the three buildings at 985, 989 3rd Avenue near East 59th Street this summer, and now demolition permits have been filed for the site. It's unclear exactly what Macklow will build, but the site can hold a 90,000-square-foot retail and residential development. 345 Carroll Street, the Sterling Equities-developed condo building at the Carroll Gardens Gowanus border in Brooklyn, is now 40% sold. The 32-unit uh, condo came onto the market two months ago with asking prices starting at $1.64 million. Remaining apartments in the building include a $3.1 million four-bed, three-bath penthouse, 
and $1.685 million for a two-bed, two-bath unit in the same building. Wow. Uh, Carroll Gardens, go figure. Isn't that yeah. something? Okay. The Archdiocese of New York plans to consolidate 37 parishes in the city, and this could prove a boon for real estate developers, especially since most of the properties are set to be vacated, are not landmark buildings. As part of a large-scale restructuring that first came to light late last month, the Archdiocese will cease services at 19 churches in Manhattan, the Bronx, and Staten Island, and will integrate those parishes with 18 others in the city. Those individual parishes will decide what to do with the unused buildings in short term, according to the Archdiocese, but both the Archdiocese and the parishes will likely decide to sell some of these parcels eventually. This is going to be a big boon for real estate developers because these churches are in quite quite uh, fantastic locations. And finally, in Beverly Hills, Palazzo di Amor, a 25-acre compound and long-term project of real estate investor Jeff Green, is officially on the market for $195 million, making it the most expensive listing in the country. When do these numbers stop? The estate, which comes with 53,000 square feet of living space, oh. 23 bathrooms, and a driveway oh. that goes on for a quarter of a mile, clobbers... The Florida mansion that yesterday held the number one spot in America's index of most expensive listings. The bonus here, though, this Southern California spread has got vineyards, a Turkish bath, several Turkish baths, uh, a rotating dance floor, and yes, rooms too numerous to name. I can only imagine what goes on there. <laughs> okay, so today it's all about my panel, my esteemed feet on the street, as I call them, residential experts here in New York City. Uh, joining me is Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential, Perul Brombat from CORE, Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Ellum, and Niall Lundgren from Dalian Realty, and Ivy Ray, Independent Broker Specialist. So hello, good morning, folks. Thanks for being here today. Good morning, good morning everybody. everyone. All right, so we have a couple of hot topics as we, we go through um, you know, each week. And I wanted to start with one that we really haven't talked about, and that's a, a, a career, rather, in real estate. Everybody, you know, we were just at a, um, a New York City Real Estate Expo last week, and everybody seems to be fascinated with becoming a real estate agent. Everybody wants to be a realtor. So if you want to be your own boss and work in an exciting industry, then being a licensed New York City real estate salesperson might be the perfect job for you. But how do you get your foot in the door? And also, are you prepared to work for 100% commission? So, guys, <clears throat> excuse me, we've all interviewed people. We've all hired teammates, assistants, the associates, whatever. You know, when, when someone approaches you about wanting to be a New York real estate individual in this wonderful town that we work in, what, you know, how do people apply for these jobs? And what are we looking for when they come to us for a position? This is uh, something that I, I encounter, you know, all the time where agents are looking to work at Dalian Realty. And it's, it's not easy to find the right people because you see reality TV shows and I give presentations at all of the, you know, real estate schools here in the city. And, you know, they're, they're filled. There's 100 people in the class and they all think that they are going to be the next million-dollar listing star. Right. Um, the reality is, is that it's it's a grueling job to start out with. You are 100% commission based, and it's it's not easy to just come come, especially if you're not from the city. To come to the city, you have to build connections, build networks. You have to have the stomach for dealing with um, rejection constantly, and, and literally just be comfortable with getting punched in the face over and over again. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of a lot of people don't really realize what it really takes. Um, so when I'm interviewing people, it's hard to tell. You know, a lot of people that I think are going to be good end up being duds, and a lot of people 
that I'm not too sure about end up being superstars. So it's uh, it, it really comes down to the what the, the the person has inside of them, I think, to really be a solid, incredible agent here in the city. You know, well said, um, uh, Niall, and I do the same thing. I interview lots of people and hire lots of people, you know, in, in a month or weeks or whatever. What, though, are you really looking for in an individual? Because a lot of people come to us with zero experience, um, but you can tell, as you said, that some of them are going to hit home runs. What is it that you're specifically looking for when when um, interviewing for a new position in real estate? Oh. I think problem solving is the first thing and ability to a positive attitude, right? They have to have a positive attitude because if you, if you don't have positive attitude or outlook, you're done. So one being, being super positive um, and having a great attitude. And then off of that, you know, just being able to deal with the different situations that arrive and problem solving and troubleshooting through them, not stopping being like, okay, how can I get out of this situation? Or how do I remedy this? I know it's very uncomfortable, but there's a way out. How am I going to do it? How am I going to, you know, what's the next step here? It's just all about having momentum. So it's, it's attitude and I think problem solving skills. Ivy, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> you know, all of us can chime in on this and I'll add to you, Niall, you couldn't be more correct. And then I'll add to that is that, you know, it is hard to suss out people um, initially, but if for those that are listening and to all of the panel, just to throw some new things in, I think it's critical to be able to multitask. And I think it's critical to have some level of pretty, you know, hefty intelligence. Um, I think it's helpful to study the lives and profiles of very successful people period. Because if you've never done real estate and you're coming in, you absolutely are going to be biting into something you've never had an experience of. And ditto on all the rejection and ditto on, but it's it's all about working, not working just harder, but smarter. So you've got to be willing to continue to evolve and multitask and, and grok multiple perspectives. And I mean, it's really quite uh, a challenge. Rachel, chime in here because I know that you have a team and I know that you've recently interviewed you know, partner people, assistant people. What is it specifically mm-hmm. that you're looking for when you're bringing someone onto your team? You're a very successful agent in town. So you, know, you add that level you know, to your interviewing uh, situation. So what are you particularly looking for? Thank you, Vince. Um, I've been through a lot of people in and out on the team and, and for the most part, it's motivation. It's it's being consistent with your emotions. I think that's something where you, I've learned over the years to have grace and to not get too excited when things are going well and not getting too down when things are going bad. And so what's really hard is that, like Niall said, working on commission, it's so frustrating and you can't look at the deal as a paycheck into paying for your rent. You have to look at it as a relationship-based business. And if you can't, see that, it's not for you. You have to understand that what is right for your client is, it it actually is more important on every single deal, whether it's a rental or a sale, than any amount of money made. And I think that in the new agents, that's really hard to teach. And when I mentor new agents, it's really, I mean, as an example, this one agent I hired was after two weeks wanted more money on a deal. After two weeks in the industry, <laughs> and he didn't know what an offering plan was. <laughs> and that's, that's an example of it is, you know, blood, sweat, tears, which we've talked about on the show. Um, 
So there's so many, so many things that go into being a good agent, and I think everything we're touching on is, is really important. And that's not something you can necessarily teach. I think it's something that you have innately. All right, we're going to take a break here and come back. On the other side of the break, I want to talk, though, about what makes this job exciting and what do new agents have to do to get themselves specced up to keep up with uh, the senior people that they are with. So we will be right back. But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Variety Channel here at Voice America. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. We're talking about new hires. We're talking about uh, people who want to be, aspire to be real estate agents now. When I say new hires, that doesn't necessarily equate to being young or um, even inexperienced. New hires into a firm can be very experienced people who have been out there in real estate for a long time. But for the most part, you know, um, this profession lately and and all the hiring that I've been doing uh, seems to appeal to recent college graduates. And I think Niall said something earlier uh, this morning in the program that, you know, based on all these uh, TV programs that are on these days, million dollar listings, selling New York, whatever, uh, we get lots of um, fun watching those shows. But they're not necessarily indicative of what the real profession is or the kind of stress that we go through or the money we make or don't make, etc. So I want to ask what what makes, you know, for us experienced people here and, and for the, the less experienced people listening, what makes this job so exciting because as we've talked about for weeks and months on this program, we have very high highs, very low lows, lots of drama, lots of trauma, lots of everything. But you know what? It is an exciting job and it's an exciting position. Why? What makes it so? And how do we translate this to the new person coming in wanting to take a crack at this? Well, I feel that there's a limitless potential of how much you can earn. That's the upside of the 100% commission. Um, and the other is um, you really are your own boss. You really can make your own hour, your own schedule, your own time. But the catch with all of that is that this business takes so much work and tenacity um, that as much as that all sort of looks glittery and beautiful, uh, the truth is that especially in the beginning, it takes a lot of time, a lot, a lot of time to really build yourself up before you really reap the benefits of both. 
Yeah, uh, I I agree with that, and you know, you know, this is this is you know the way we always talk about setting expectations, right, with our clients. I mean, you've got to set expectations right with a new person who wants to come into this this profession because again, it's difficult and it has a lot of uh, earning power. But you got to get there. I think Rachel said earlier, you know, everybody, you know, in the beginning, you know, they're worried about I need more money or what about the commission check or what about this. This is really. A jo- this is a career, and if you look at it as a career, not a job, and it's a profession, not a job, and it's a relationship-building career, not a job, that's when I think we're going to be successful in this business. And those who kind of come flashing in and out for paycheck, it really doesn't work that well. So before we move on to our next topic, any general tips that you may have you know, uh, for anybody who wants to become a real estate agent and approaches you, Ivy? Um, you know, I recently had I'll, – I'll speak quickly because I know we're going to move on. But I had a, a longtime family friend who's got a daughter who is just graduating from college. And she called me up and asked for my advice. And her parents were willing to support her in her choice to really want to do real estate. She has a lot of reasons to want to do it and they're all very good other than I want the new career and I think it's exciting. She has vision moving forward. What I recommended is that her parents would support her that they would give her an amount of money mm. so she could live well and okay, et cetera, for six months. And so she wouldn't be in one of those positions that even some seasons veterans find their way in where you're working and you're under intense financial pressure for whatever reason, which really changes the way you work. It changes the dynamic between you and Everything. others. And it makes – it bears on your decision-making. So it – you know, it's it's a kind of a cool way to consider it because if you were going to start a business and you were raising funds to – financing for your business, you would have an, an, an amount of money allotted for expenses for the coming year or six months so that you could operate – App, you know, freely and not have to worry about paying the bills and not have to, this is how you open a business. So I think it's uh, a cool idea because a lot of people sort of have to work two jobs and if they don't work two jobs and that makes your real estate, you know, career suffer because it takes kind of 24 seven and, um, and it just relieves the pressure and you can learn from your mentors and you can learn, you know, you can relax and learn and get informed and kick some butt without having to worry about paying your rent. So yeah, and the biggest thing that Ivy said is, is that you should learn, right? And I think it's a learn-before-you-earn business. And it's about just stepping into the role, understanding that it is a career, and being humble in that role, and not worrying so much about making a quick buck or wanting to raise after two weeks, like Rachel said. It's about just you know putting your best foot forward and slowly learning this business, because real estate in Manhattan specifically, or New York City, is unlike anywhere in, in the country or the world for that matter. So it's just a matter of just learning the processes here and being slow and diligent about it. And the better that you do there, I think the the more likely you have of sustaining a long-term career. I think it's also a very, very important point to talk about being aggressive, but also respectful at the same time. And that's a really fine line in our business. So over the years, brokers will learn or agents will learn. You have to be persistent to get that deal done. You have to be Non-stop. You don't take no as an answer. You, no means yes in our industry. So you keep going. But through the while, you be respectful to other brokers. You always be respectful to attorneys and managing agents. Um, and that's, you know, something that you learn through the years. But I think that's an important note is it's very difficult to do our job, but to be nice and humble at the same time. And also the one other piece of advice I think that's really important for a new person entering the business is think about where your business is going to come from. 
Um, I, you know, so one, if you are someone who either went to what I call a feeder school, like you went to, you know, one of the Ivy Leagues or one of the schools that really does have a lot of uh, students that are funneling into the city, then you will probably have a peer group uh, from whom to farm for business. Um, Mm -hmm. If you grew up on, you know, somewhere in Manhattan, then you have a natural base as well. If you don't have those things, um, like Niall said, you're going to have to be really creative about what you're willing to do in order to get leads and to, to build a business for yourself. And so one of the biggest considerations, I think, coming into it is really sort of thinking about where your business is going to come from because um, people sometimes have a misconception of leads sort of just getting handed to them. And while your firm may give you a few leads here and there, um, that's not what you can count on in order to build your business. And Parul, that's extremely 1,000% well said. And, and I got to tell you something. This is what I spend most of my day telling my new agents on a, on a daily, weekly basis because I think the perception has changed through the years. I know when I first started 14 years ago, I didn't have the expectation that a lot of newer folk have today. I was told, here's your desk, here's your phone, here's your computer. Good luck with a no. tap on the back. Go. Right. <laughs> Today, it's like, well, where are the leads? Where's the training? What about this? And what about that? Well, you know, you're an entrepreneur. You're an independent <laughs> contractor. Figure it out. Yeah. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'll top that with I think that's maybe one of the best pieces of advice that we've had all day when I've had the opportunity to work with younger agents or people just come to me that know me. Figure out where you've come from. Even if you're just graduating from school, if you were a basketball player in school, if you were a writer in school, if you, wherever you've come from, if you're a new mother, you have this whole universe of people that you can intimately relate to because you've mm-hmm. been there, whether you're a grown-up, grown-up or not, and target that audience because you succeed the most when you do what you know. Yeah, well said. And then I got to say, you know, for, so for all of the new people out there who want to become or listening today who want to become real estate agents, we love you. We want you. Please keep it going. But just make sure that your expectations are, are correct when you come into the field and you understand that it's a grassroots profession. And because there is no salary and there are no benefits and there are no, you know, nine to five scheduled hours, it's really up to you to make whatever you want to make of this unlimited income, as we call it. So, Good luck to everybody, and uh, let's move on. Keeping a rent-stabilized apartment. So we all know in this town there are three types of rental apartments. There's a rent-controlled apartment, there's a rent-stabilized apartment, and then there's a free market rate rental apartment. So let's talk a little bit about you know the rent control and rent-stabilized. So one of you guys want to explain to the listening audience, you know, what the situation is with rent stabilized. For example, if um, you know you're you're there for ten years and you want to renovate, or you're there for ten years and you know you think that the landlord's going to put you out. In reality, they can't really put you out. Why is that, guys? What is the 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 basis of the rent stabilized and rent control apartments in this town? Why do we have them? No other place that I'm aware of in the United States or anywhere has these kinds of rent regulated apartments? Well, we originally had them because it added to the affordability in Manhattan. It was for affordable housing, mostly for people who couldn't afford market rate uh, apartments but had good jobs. Over the years, a lot of apartments have been destabilized. In the 1950s and 60s, we saw the rise of what were called Mitchell-Lama buildings, Right. These were buildings that Senator Mitchell and Sem- Senator Lama, um, well, they passed bills in order to get 
middle-class subsidized housing, and these were more to be owned. But with rent-stabilized and, and rent-controlled, again, they're people who have jobs, who are working, but they couldn't necessarily afford certain kinds of apartments. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, the problem with, you know, or the issue, I should say, with the rent control and the rent-stabilized apartments today is a lot of people would like to see that go away. You know, landlords don't like it because they could be making a lot more money and they don't. Uh, people who are living in these apartments, especially the elderly in town, don't want those uh, rules to go away because then they're going to be put up to market value. Listen, if you're in a free market apartment and you're paying $2,000 a month and the landlord decides at lease expiration he wants to raise you $500 or $1,000 more per month, he can do so. Legally, he can do so. So you can pay you know, whatever you pay in a free market rent and keep your fingers crossed that you know, your landlord isn't going to really gouge you at the end of a lease. But in a stabilized you know, apartment, it can only go up a certain percent. In a controlled apartment, it goes up very little, and a lot of these rent-controlled apartments aren't even under lease. So, you know, when you're out there, can you find, you know, for example, if somebody comes to you and says, I want a rent-controlled apartment, can you find that for somebody? Well, no, people ask. I mean, you know, I want a rent-controlled apartment. Well, everybody wants a rent-controlled apartment. Right. Correct. But can you find You can't find find rent-controlled ones because they have different laws, and I'm not clear as to what they are. I have been able to find over the years rent-stabilized apartments for people. The thing with the rent-stabilized apartment is you have to be able to make a maximum amount of money, Mm -hmm. and the rent has to be a certain amount. The apartment themselves are regulated. Correct. What about buyouts, guys? You know, in some of these rent-controlled or rent-stabilized you know, units, for example, there's a whole building and there may be five or six, you know, uh, stabilized or controlled units in these buildings. The landlord or the sponsor wants to buy out those units so they can put them on the market either for sale or for rent mm-hmm. at, at free market rates. How is that handled? I mean, you know, do, do you have to buy, get it, take a buyout or can you just say no? You can, and, and, and by the way, what is the buyout number? You can say no and the buyout number is whatever you guys decide. I've had a few friends in this situation. I'm sorry, you're talking about being in a like a stabilized a building where all of a sudden they're going to go condo. Correct. It's well, not. yeah, it, or a or sponsor whatever. unit where there's a few units left because the sponsors always held them back and they yeah. are stabilized just because they're stabilized or have been forever. You guys, correct me if I'm wrong. They cannot make you leave. No, they cannot. And as Vince mentioned a few weeks ago when we were talking about 15 Central Park West, there was that one guy who was the holdout for years and uh-huh. he got a mm. huge buyout. But what yeah. you don't hear in the news is he had huge capital gains taxes on that, as does anyone else. So you could ask for a gigantic number, maybe even in the hundreds of thousands or millions, but you're going to have huge capital gains taxes on that. So Listen, I had a friend a years ago. A lot of long, hard thinking. I had a friend uh, several years ago, He a, a building on Central Park South, which I won't name, but he's lived in that building for now for probably 40 years, um, and his rent is very low. He was offered a buyout from the landlord, and it's a it, it's a co op building, and um, there were a few you know units left. Whatever he's been there forever. He's been he was his studio I think was six hundred and fifty square feet, so it was a very big studio, actually park facing. And we were sitting at the beach in the Hamptons, you know, one summer, and he was telling us about well, you know, my my landlord just offered me a million dollars to to move out of my studio, and you know what? He turned it down. He turned it down because he said, you know, what, what am I going to buy for a million dollars in this town? I said, we can certainly buy a studio and put some more money in the bank. I said, I don't know that I'd walk yeah. away from that. But he said no. Anyway, we've got to go to break. We'll come right back after these messages. Don't go away.
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back, everybody, and I'm talking to my panel, Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential, Parul Brombat from CORE, Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Elliman, Niall Lundgren from Dalian Realty, and Ivy Ray, our independent broker specialist. So we're just talking about, you know, rent control, rent stabilized apartments, and basically, you know, you can stay there for any number of years uh, forever uh, because you really can't be thrown out of those two types of apartments. But of course, in a, a free market rent apartment, you can be, or you can be raised, you know, just about anything the landlord wants you to be uh, raised to. So on the heels of that, let's talk about in a rental unit in general, whether it's control, whether it's stabilized, whether it's free market, you are only allowed to do a certain amount or type of upgrades in the apartment. When you're in a rental unit, you're pretty much a prisoner to what you've inherited by me, you know, meaning when you moved in, what the condition was. Landlords typically don't allow you to do too much. So, you know, to decorate your rental with a collection of personal objects and and possessions, and your landlord can't really say a thing. So you can come in and, and put your own, you know, stuff around, but install a washer dryer or build a new wall and you'll face consequences. Pay uh, to right your wrong or in some extreme cases, get evicted if you do things that you really aren't supposed to do. Indeed, most landlords include provisions in their leases that forbid tenants from making alterations without express consent. And that could be simply painting. You know, some some buildings won't let you paint other than the, the, the beige color wall or the off-white wall that they, you know, are paint before you move in. If you take on a project, the landlord then has a, um, he has to vet the vendors, make sure that they have the appropriate permits and insurance and worry that the changes you make will not hurt the building. So my question to you guys this morning is what can you do to upgrade your place without upsetting, you know, the building's owners or rules? Like for example, window treatments. Are we allowed to, to put window treatments up in, in our apartments? Yes. <laughs> that you yeah, can do, you guys, right? You don't have to okay. ask permission to put Actually, in window treatments. Actually, it depends. There are uh, definitely condo buildings in hello. the city uh, <laughs> where you can only put in specific type of window treatment or specific color so that the windows look um, look even from the outside street. Because if you look up at a lot of these all-glass buildings, you will see that the windows will look kind of like a weird, awkward sort of, you know, different colors and shapes and whatnot. And so a lot of buildings, for aesthetics reasons, 
may actually regulate uh, what color um, and what kind of window treatments you can put up. I think with wanting to do any kind of renovation in any rental building, and I have had a lot of experience with this, the bottom line is you keep a really, really nice, friendly, and respectful relationship with the landlord. I actually had someone who renovated from scratch an entire kitchen in a rental, but every step, well, first of all, they were going to stay there a very long time. Second of all, they kept such a great relationship with the landlord and invited him in to see everything they were doing, show every permit, show everything, and it was very smooth, and this was a grouchy landlord. I was shocked the whole thing went through. So even if you're going to change doorknobs or put in California closets or something like that, the main thing is respect for the landlord's property and being sugary, sweet, nice. And I think what you also want to do is make sure there's an option to renew and make sure if it's in a condo that the owner doesn't intend on selling in the next two to five years. So you don't want to pay up front for all these improvements and then be kicked out. Well, right. in, and in the, the, in the, the reality case, is, is that a lot of times right. when um, you're doing something that's going to be a capital improvement for the landlord, as it's a benefit for the landlord for the long run. So like Rachel said, you want to protect yourself. But secondly, also know that as long as um, you bring the landlord into the process, as Deborah mentioned, um, and make sure that he approves of the upgrades that you want to do, a lot of times they're going to be very amenable. I myself, in my own rental, uh, paid to put in a skylight in my living room. And, um, and the landlord, you know, had specific stipulations of, you know, if there's a leak, et cetera. Uh, but he was unwilling to pay for the skylight himself. Uh, allowed me to do it because I was willing to pay for it because ultimately it added value to the department. I agree with all of what you guys have said. I think the one thing that um, if I've worked with a lot of lofts in the past, and so I'm in total agreement that having a good relationship with your owner, your landlord is key. And there are a lot of things that there, you know, generally will be no problem with putting up really good shelving, putting up whatever. But the one thing we didn't mention is sometimes you are, you are able to make an agreement that you can almost do anything you'd like and then turn it back to its original condition before you move out. So, you know, you almost always can do things. I just wanted to clarify for the sake of the listening audience, because here in New York, of course, we do things so so differently than anywhere else in the world. When we talk about landlords, we have two types of landlords here, and I think Rachel mentioned condo before. When you're dealing with a condo landlord, you're really dealing with the owner of that specific apartment. So that's who you need to deal with when you want to do any kind of work or anything, improvement or otherwise, in the unit. It's not the building's call. It's the individual landlord. When you're dealing with a rental building, as Parul just said, and I live in a rental building as well, we have to deal with the managing agent or the person who you know, is responsible for running that whole building. And those rules are generally more stringent and more you know, strict than a regular condo uh, owner for a whole yeah. host of reasons. And you know, I, I just wanted to say, I, I've tried to, for the past, I'm living in my apartment, it's going to be 11 years, and I've done I've done some some updates and some stuff with landlord approval. Um, uh, you know, I guess I'm a, a long-term tenant there or they like me, whatever. But I've been trying to put wooden floors in my kitchen for the past, you know, I don't know, eight years. And it's this horrible white tile that comes in, you know, most of these rentals. And I just can't stand it. I live in a pre-war, so it's magnificent. But uh, I'm not able to get permission yet. And I keep trying. Every year or two, I go back and I ask the same question. But I have not yet gotten um, approval to put wood floors on my kitchen. So that's one 
you know, example of you live in this space, it's your own, no one can take it away from you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But there are things that you can and there are things that you can't do. So let me ask you, you know, when you're talking about kitchens and bathrooms, when you're talking about faucets and, and shower heads and, and, you know, minor decorative things, are these things okay? Can we do these things in our apartments? As long as you keep the original. I'm sorry? I would still ask permission because bottom line, it's not your property. And again, it's keeping a good relationship with the landlord. And going back to what Ivy said just a few minutes ago uh, about having to return things to original condition and making sure everything's okay with the landlord, I actually had a co-op buyer a number of years ago who, with permission, had a, a, um, an, a, a rental apartment with 15-foot ceilings, and he had permission to put in a loft bed. He did, however, and he didn't read this carefully, he did have to get rid of it when he vacated, and he never did. Mm. And over the course of the next few years, a few lawsuits ensued, which followed him when he was purchasing a co-op, and he got a board rejection in the Mm. same neighborhood because that was seen, seeing these lawsuits, it was seen by the future landlord or managing agent or anything as this person's going to be a problem. Isn't that so something? So make sure wow. you read everything. And if it says in your lease to put something back in original condition, you better do it. Agreed. That's extremely valuable. That's a good story. You know, I just wanted really to say example. Um, it is. And I wanted to say something really quickly. If we've got listening audience that is going to be considering renting here or anywhere, I advise clients that if they come in and they see a space, but the closets are like totally in original condition and there's one pole to hang stuff on and maybe there's not great shelving in some of the kitchen, there's wasted space. So you stand there and then they turn to you and go, I would take this place if... I think it's really important beforehand to share everything that you're thinking, all of your thinking with your agent. And then the agent gets to go back to the landlord and say, we've got a deal here if these improvements can be made. And then they're put in the lease as a rider and, you know, everything is above board versus waiting to move in, knowing you want to put in California closets, knowing. Anyway, that's it. Well, you know, there, there, there's a certain um, aspect of improving the space because every time I approach my landlord on my building about wanting to do something, and as I said before, I've done a lot in my apartment, you know, building wall units, you know, um, wooden um, cornices over, over my windows, uh, changed the refrigerator to a stainless refrigerator in my kitchen, you know, and that one was a little bit of a hurdle because the, the, the building said, well, you know, if you move, you have to take this refrigerator, but you also have to replace what was here. So I made a deal with them that they're storing, you know, the refrigerator that I had from the building downstairs in the basement, which is fine with me. It's not in my place. Uh, and I intend to take my appliance with me anyway. So, you know, you can do what you want to do, um, but with permission, as Deborah keeps saying, and and make sure that you're in good relations with the building because generally speaking, I've had yes to almost everything. And, and trust me, I've done a lot in my apartment. And the only thing that I'm, I'm still you know, hanging up on is, is the floor in the kitchen, but I'm going to win my way and I'm going to get my point. <laughs> I'm going to get it. I hope they're listening. Next year when we're talking about this again, <laughs> trust me, I'll have my wooden floor. But let's talk about paint colors for a minute because that's the, the easiest or the fastest or the, 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 the most that people want to do in, in, in lots of cases. You move in, it's all white because the building always paints white, but you want colors, you want accent walls, you want a lot of things. What is the rule with painting your rental apartment? Again, I don't care if it's stabilized, controlled, or free market. It's what I said uh, earlier. As long as you return of, it oh, sorry, to the original white or whatever it was when you first got there, 
you know, you're you're free to do whatever you want in terms of painting. Yes. That's that's from my experience. Yeah, and also, Vince, um, speaking of sort of informing our audiences uh, who or the, or the people who don't live in New York City, um, because I think that this conversation is probably fairly fascinating in general, that, right. um, you know, when I've lived in other parts of the country, I would have never even in, imagined or envisioned this idea of, you know, making these sort of, like, changes from skylights to floors to appliances. Um, that is definitely something, first and foremost, that's fairly unique to New York City. Um, but aside from that, the other thing that's also quite unique is even if you want to paint a wall, if you live in a doorman building, um, whether it's a condo or a, you know, or, or if it's a rental building, chances are your painter, even just for one wall, you, is going to have to come in and have specific insurance and permissions right. and licenses to be able to come in and actually do the job. So, you know, there is a certain value that gets, that just, I mean, it's just that's so much more expensive in this city to make these sorts of changes and upgrades um, than they are typically, in my experience, anywhere else. Yeah, you know, I've got a good question, you guys, and I don't know the answer to this. Because things are so um, regulated, et cetera, in cities like New York, what if I want to paint my own wall grass green? I've got 17-foot ceilings. I actually did this. And I had this huge wall. And I did it myself with my girlfriends on a Friday night with lots of beers and pizza. Is that actually against the building rules? No, but I think as Deborah said earlier, you know, as long as you ask permission – uh, you can you can do it because I've painted in apartments in the past too. You don't need to have insurance because you're the one who's doing it. Oh, okay. But uh, and a lot of people listen. A lot of people sneak in professionals under the guise of being All a the friend, time. Oh, totally. and they're helping out because they want to sidestep the you know the the approval process, whatever. You know, I don't recommend that. Uh, you know, we got to do what's right in the buildings. But if you do it yourself uh, and you just seek permission, the, the listen. At the end of the day, with anything we want to do, very minor or very major in our apartment, it is always important. To get the building's permission because, listen, you know, you get a water leak, your bathtub gets stopped up, your toilet doesn't flush, the super comes into the apartment. You know, in my house, you know, the super or the handyman is in my apartment at least once a month for something, even just to help me hang something. And I'm like, they see stuff. And so you make improvements and you make, you know, changes. You Uh know, these things don't go by these people. Uh, without notice. So, and sometimes they'll say, oh, is that new? And I'd be like, since when are you so observant? Seriously? But they see these things because it's their job to make sure, protect the integrity of the buildings. (coughs) I put a hook on my bathroom door in a condo, in the first condo rental that I did. And the owner came by and wanted to meet my dogs. I mean, we had a great relationship. He had a cow. There was a hook on my bathroom door. Mm -hmm. You know, and I learned. He he owns the place. I should have asked. Yeah. yeah, it's his. You're right, man. But I, yeah. it was the last thing on my mind. Well, we think we can just put a hook on the back of the door because we want to hang our bathrobe or right. our towel. How hard is that? Well, it's somebody's property, and I, someone says, "No, you can't do that." Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, it is what it is. But here are some of the things I think that landlords will bless and say it's okay. Again, as several of you mentioned, with the 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 right permission from uh, from the building, upgrading appliances as long as you are improving. The situation, most buildings will allow you to upgrade appliances, upgrade lighting. You know, lighting is is something that's that's very big and very, you know, personal to people. Uh, So upgrading lighting is something that's allowed. But again, you know, when you're doing structural things like, you know, hi-hats or um, track lighting, whatever, you need permission to do that because 
you know, you're, 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 you're damaging the infrastructure of the apartment. But again, that's something that landlords will probably say is okay. And repainting the last one, probably okay as long as you get permission. And as Niall said before, when you leave, you need to make sure that you restore it back to the color that was delivered to you. In most cases, it's white or off-right. All right, so we're going to take another break. We'll come back for our last segment, and we're going to talk about one of my favorite types of apartment, the classic six in a pre-war building. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back for our last segment, and I wanted to um, talk about one of my favorite um, uh, apartment uh, size, size apartments and, and, and certainly style of apartment. It's the classic six. But I want to talk about, you know, in, in a pre-war building, why is this type of apartment so covetable? So confused by the ubiquitous listing term and curious about why a six-room apartment has such an appeal, what does the phrase mean, classic six? Plus, are there benefits and drawbacks to buying one of these? Of course, there are, and we'll talk about some of them. But why don't we call it a six-room apartment, guys? Why is it a classic six? Who can give me that answer? You well, can, six Vince. Rooms, right? It has a living room. And there's a formal dining room that has a, uh, a window, a separate kitchen, two full bedrooms, and a, and a maid's bath. That's usually located off the kitchen. And, Did, a, ma- and a maid's room. And so, a maid's room. And Did where, you look that up? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I well, have actually, to tell you something. What's called classic? Classic actually means... The maid's room is off of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. You could have six-room right. apartments that are pre-war, but it's one of those quirky things that classic actually means off the kitchen. They're well, also well, not classic well, fives. I don't know what where that came from. No, classic five, Ed- classic five fives. is there. It's an Edwardian five. It's a one-bedroom and a maid's room and a living room, formal dining room, and kitchen. So you've got your five rooms and the Edwardian That's five, right. the classic five. Now, here's the thing with the classic six or the classic five. Um, you know, these are apartments where, you know, you need that third bedroom, okay? And this is why this is so important. And I have many customers that I've sold this this style apartment to. You need that third bedroom, but yet you can't afford it because the third bedroom in this town, you know, will bring you up another $500,000, $700,000 depending on, on a lot of things. 
the maids' room is big enough to have a child stay in that room. So lots of personal friends of mine and lots of customers of mine will put a, a young child in uh, a maids' room. It's off the kitchen, so it's pretty you know safe and sound. And that is their third bedroom until they really actually get too old and then they decide they need to have a bigger apartment. But the Classic 6 is one of those apartments that is so in demand. And when you look on the market, first of all, when they come on the market, they fly off the market. They're usually priced you know, competitively, but they're not priced as high as the uh, three-bedroom unit that is out there. So what are some of the, you know, what are some of the, the pros and cons of, of, of well, first of all, pre-war uh, uh, types of apartments or classic six? I come up with you know, high ceilings because most pre-war buildings are at least nine feet tall. You know, in some post-war buildings, as we've talked about in the past, you're talking about eight-foot ceilings, eight-and-a-half-foot ceilings. Mm-hmm. What else? What are some of the pros, you know, uh, about these the style apartment and or the style of building the pre-war? Oh, interesting moldings, oftentimes mm-hmm. fireplaces, mm-hmm. always wooden floors, original details. Oh, yes. original details, and they're not touched. It's classic New York, is what it is. So it, you know, it's classic New York. Invaluable. It's, New York. it's beautiful. You see, I'm so, unfortunately I, has happened a lot, especially on the Upper West Side. Is in the '90s when people wanted more open spaces. Yeah. Many homeowners turned that extra maid's room and bathroom into a larger kitchen. Absolutely. And they disappeared, which is actually kind of tragic. I think I, – I agree with you. Well, you know, here, here's the thing, and that's a good point, Deborah, because for some people who don't need that third bedroom, the two-bedroom is fine. The maid's room either gets converted into a laundry room yeah. or it gets converted into another closet, walk-in closet. I was walk-in say closet, walk-in closet. Which is always, you know, you know, high marks here in this town. Or – they knocked the walls down. I have a friend who did the same thing and made a huge, large eating kitchen. So the whole family can eat in an eating kitchen just like you're sitting in a house. So there are many things, again, that you can do in uh, that style apartment. What are some of the cons? You know, I say a lack of open layout, as Deborah just said. It's not, you know, it's not cookie cutter, but it's not an open concept floor plan. Your divided rooms, more formal. I think what mm-hmm. I like about it is it's a very formal. I'm more yeah. formal in my living than uh, maybe the next person. I like a pre-war, classic, formal, separate rooms, you know, separate mm-hmm. kitchen, all that kind of stuff. But some people consider that a con because in well, the 90s and into the 2000s when this open concept, certainly in all these new developments, you have kitchens in living rooms. What do you think about that? Yeah, I grew up in lofts. So, I'm, you oh, know, you I know. don't have to have, you know, the new development thing. And I actually prefer old New York. <laughs> but my preference is for loft space because it's what I was raised in uh, well, versus all the catacombs. I prefer the open kitchen because I like, I mean, I feel like kitchen is sort of the center of my home. And um, I like the idea of just having friends who are sort of, hanging out around the kitchen counter and then we move to the dining area, but all sort of, and and the living room is right there. So it's like having Mm -hmm. it all sort of seamless in a big open space. So whether it's lost or not, um, even in a lot of condo buildings, um, I just prefer that open versus a Mm -hmm. formal dining room. Me too. I think there's one con that most of us really don't talk about, and we have to think for a minute about this, is it's mainly in the larger pre-war apartments you see advertised a classic six, classic seven, you get all excited, your imagination goes wild. But you, what you have to realize is all these super tall buildings were very recently built. So most of these apartments, especially on the west side, the east side, midtown, uh, Gramercy, they're dark because they're fa- they may be in the back of the building and they're facing other apartments. So you're getting your space, but it's not the exciting open light 
apartments you're going to have like the newer ones. Well, it's isn't kind of isn't bad. that isn't that the case? And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the loft style apartment here in town. You know, most people who migrated down to the Soho and Tribeca neighborhoods years ago went down there for space, open space, lots of space, lots of square footage. And the sacrifice there, or the trade off rather, there was light because you're looking at brick walls, you're looking at other buildings. Mm-hmm. And you're right, Deborah. In some of these classic six and sevens, you know, the front rooms might be looking at you know, a, a street, but certainly the bedrooms and the kitchen and, and whatever are in the back. In most cases, dining rooms are too. But again, you know, the trade-off is I'm raising a family. I have lots of, I need, I have need for lots of space and I need to have a big apartment. So, you know, I, again, I'm very old world when it comes to um, this kind of <laughs> apartment, uh, whatever. I feel yeah, like I live in New York. What I was going to say is exactly that, is that even when an apartment is a bit darker, when there's openness in the space, it still feels a little more airy and just has a, I don't know, more open, brighter feel to me. Whereas when the rooms are cut up and there's smaller space and darkness, it just feels more enclosing. But it is such a personal preference thing because I I can see the value of a former former dining room just just as much. It's just it just comes down to personal preference. I think my personal preference is, you know, I just kind of like to connect with old world New York. And if you're going to live in New York City, my opinion, yes, there's both sides. There's the new glitzy, you know, ceiling, floor to ceiling windows and, and light and all that. But for me, it's kind of like I feel like I'm living in the 20s. I feel like I I'm know. living in the 30s. And it's, it's, it's heaven. It's, it, mm-hmm. it is. And, and that's my – listen, that's my personal preference yeah. when it comes to housing stock. And I think, you know, my apartment feels very homey and very cozy for me. But that might not be for everybody. And else. I can't wait because we're all going to see it next Ooh, Friday. We are all going to see it next <laughs> Friday. There you go. Newsflash bulletin. I know. <laughs> so the every, world. all our listeners, please show up at no. – There you go. All right. I listen, think one more point, Vince, and, yeah. and everybody else is, is just when a buyer is converting these classic six and seven into a convertible three and four, it's kind of important to remember that the bedroom size may not be the legal size for the resale part. So right. – um, before anyone converts anything into a three or four, to look at the plumbing, get the super involved, get an architect involved, make sure that bedroom is able to be an eight by ten. Um, very, just for very good point. Very good point. And listen, we all have to always remember, as brokers and of consumers buying apartments here, we always have to be, you know, concerned with resale because whether we think we're going to buy something forever, it mm-hmm. never lasts. Anyway, last week we talked about what you can buy for four hundred and fifty thousand dollars in this town. This week we've raised the bar to seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and I found plenty of options, especially if you're willing to buy a co-op. And we talked all about co-ops last week. Here are a few in the price range. So in Yorkville and Manhattan, which is the Upper East Side, two bed, one bath. Uh, on East 88th Street, $745,000. On the Upper West Side, Manhattan, two bed, one bath, 599 West End Avenue, $749,000. And Hamilton Heights, which is Upper uh, Manhattan, two bed, two bath, on 148th Street, $740,000. Crown Heights, $749,000 for three bedrooms and one bath. Uh, Born Hill in Brooklyn, $750,000 for two bed, one bath. Prospect Heights, same thing, 750, two bed, one bath. So as you see um, around the boroughs, you can find lots of choices if you want a co-op. You don't have to be spending you know, millions of dollars for a two bed, two bath. But as we talked about many times before, it really comes down to you know, sacrifice. It comes down to, I think one of you mentioned last week, you know, access to transportation. So you know, the movement out to some of these other boroughs, the movement out to some of these other neighborhoods that are becoming very popular and very big in demand, you know, there's, there are sacrifices. So you've got to you know, walk a little bit to the train. 
But if you're getting a three-bedroom in Brooklyn, you know, for $750,000, we all know what that's going to cost here, right? It's a mm-hmm. lot of money. So um, any other comments on uh, what we've talked about today uh, on the Classic Six, on rent-stabilized apartments, on what you can get for $750,000? Last-minute comments before we go off and start our week? Mm-hmm. Next all week right. we'll bump it up to a million? Next week, we're going to bump it up to a million. So anyway, that's Good Morning New York for this week. We are back next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific. You can always catch the show later in the day on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining me, and I will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.